Season 2 of Hard to Believe is a proud part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. You can find this and other great shows at cageclub.me. The complete Season 1 archive is also available at hardtobelieve.me. This show is now available on YouTube. Just search Hard to Believe Podcast. You can email me at john at cageclub.me. We're on Facebook at Hard to Believe Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at ProbablyRealJB. That's P-R-O-B-A-B-L-Y-R-E-A-L-J-B. The show is written and produced by me. Metamorphosis. From the Greek, meta, meaning change, alter, or beyond, and morph, meaning shape or form. The journey of life, every life, is that of a gradual but persistent and unending metamorphosis. But sometimes those changes, those metamorphoses, happen suddenly and dramatically. The Roman poet Ovid's magnum opus, The Metamorphoses, written in the first decade AD, centers around such stories. Ovid resurrected and retold ancient Greek myths like that of Callisto, the nymph-turned-bear-turned-celestial-being we all know today as Ursa Major. Thirteen years ago, Nina McLaughlin was ten years into a job in journalism, working for the alternative newspaper The Boston Phoenix. A few years later, she was helping renovate homes as a carpenter. And today, two published books later, she carves spoons while once again pursuing her writing, albeit in a way that allows her far more creative freedom than did working for an alternative news publication. And still, 30 years before that, she was a gifted and accomplished young cellist, which I know because at the time, she was my orchestra stand partner. Nina's own metamorphosis is reflected in her first book, Hammerhead, a memoir of her transformation into a carpenter and what she learned about herself and the world along the way. And her second book, Wake Siren, is about the women in Ovid's stories, who are rarely more than pawns for the aims of men and are frequently punished for choices they never made. Nina resurrected many of them in her book, giving them voice and agency and putting their stories in a world that is at once stranger and still more familiar to the modern reader. Her work has been praised by critics and readers alike, and in 2015, Hammerhead earned her a spot in Refinery29's 21 Authors You Need to Know, while Wake Siren was nominated for both the Lambda Literary Award and the Massachusetts Book Award. Nina McLaughlin is my guest today. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. Nina, welcome to Hard to Believe. I'm delighted to be here, John. Last time I saw you, we were uh, in middle school, I think. And I, that's that's likely, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so this is like 1991 of the early ones, 1991. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, and we were cello stand partners. And... That's what I that's what I keep thinking about. It's is playing, <laughs> playing cello next to you in in like fourth and fifth grade. Yep. I I just remember. Uh, when we both discovered like the existence of harmony and mm. uh and and when I, it was like it was like fourth grade and playing the cello uh part of twinkle twinkle little star and we're both like this isn't, this isn't how it goes <laughs> like, <laughs> and there was this sort of revelatory moment when um all of the sections came together and we're like oh, oh i see there it is yeah it mm-hmm. makes a cool sound that that helps the other sounds <laughs> and the real string instruments like the violin get to play the part that we know okay i see 
now I'm beginning to see the where I fit in the orchestra. Exactly, uh, exactly. Uh, John, do you do you still play? I don't. No. <laughs> I don't. No. You do a lot of things. So I, you don't still play, do you? I don't. My cello is is actually in my basement right now. I still own it, but I have not played. I actually I took it out a couple of years ago, and I was surprised. I still know how to read music, which was really cool. Like the language stayed, you know, like I could, I mean, I didn't sound great, but like I could translate the notes the way they were supposed to be sort of, which was, which was a neat surprise. Yeah. It's, it's weird because I can kind of do the same thing as well. And it's sort of like the, the same amount of knowledge of French was retained in my uh, head because uh-huh, uh-huh. I can still read a lot of French, but I sure as hell can't speak it. Yeah. So like, if, you try, <laughs> if you try to have a conversation with me in French, I'm not going to do very well. Although yeah, I am yeah. playing Duol- Duolingo a lot, but, um, but if I, if I were to like read a, uh, let's say, you know, 12 year olds novel in French, I could probably do. Right. That. That's cool. Um, but yeah, it's, it's weird. Uh, but I think that's just sort of how my brain is wired. Yeah. It's, it's one of my, what, one of my great academic regrets was not learning a modern language. Like I took French in sixth and seventh grade or seventh and eighth grade and then switched over to Latin in high school. Um, and it's just really like, I really do feel like, well, it's just a colossal regret for me. <laughs> not too late. It's not too late to learn another language. And I have tried here and there to teach myself Spanish. Um, <laughs> I, I, my, my whole goal is basically to, in my spare time, like Duolingo myself back into semi-French fluency and then yeah. use that, use that to learn Italian and then Spanish. And, wow. and that's not, yeah, it's not happening. <laughs> cause, wow. But that's, cause have, that's good. That's great. That's good. Right? Ambition. Yeah, yeah. That's, but, but maybe um, when my kids aren't constantly in need of my attention all the time, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, and I don't load myself up with other, other projects, I'll actually follow through on that. But that's, that's cool. my, that's my sort of, um, my, my bucket list. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. That's, that's <laughs> those are good items uh, to be working towards. It's my, it's my half court three pointer. It's like, yeah. <laughs> going to get there one day. One, one of these days, you just watch me. Uh, okay, so we're probably boring people to tears right now, um, <laughs> chattering. But um, let's talk about who you are. And uh, you've had an eventful, it sounds like, actually, it's interesting because I've been listening to um, a lot of uh, interviews with you and, and sort of talks that you've given. And um, I think a lot of what you've been doing in the last 10 years or so um, mirrors a lot of where the path that I, that I took, uh, which is that I was also like, I was in journalism, um, or in media, I should say. Uh, and I ended up working for an evil corporation. And and then I was Mm. like, I can't do this. (laughs) Um, I'd rather be a poor teacher. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, how do I, how do I become a teacher? (laughs) And I I figured out how (laughs) through the internet. And I was like, great. (laughs) 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 Um, and I was listening to you talking about being in a very similar sort of position I, you were working for uh, the boston phoenix which is not a not a major evil corporation but it's still you know the media right um and and then you sort of changed your life via craigslist is that is that mm-hmm. roughly accurate? exactly right yep exactly right so i had i had been working for the boston phoenix which is uh, an alternative news weekly, which, you know, I mean, unfortunately, they're, they're sort of, they've been dying across the country over these last years. Um, mm-hmm. And it was an, an amazing, an amazing sort of way to start 
I don't, I mean, career always feels like a weird word to use for what I've been up to, but um, it was a neat place to work. But it was like maybe I mean, it was perhaps the same for you. Like it was just this sort of the matter of sitting in front of a computer and clicking and scrolling all day. Um, when I when I when I decided I needed to leave, it was I was the uh, managing editor of the website, and it just it was like that kind of. The feeling of man, this is this is my one time on Earth, and I am just staring at a at the internet and making lists that people are going to click on, and it just didn't feel <laughs> like I could do that for very much longer. Um, so yeah, so I I I, I quit in two thousand eight, and <laughs> in a very strange turn of events, um, got a job as an apprentice to a carpenter, um, and then worked as uh, worked as a carpenter for nine years. And then that, that, let's see, it's been a couple years now that I've mostly now just been writing. Um, so yeah, varied, a varied, a varied, um, job trajectory, I guess. So yeah. So you're not doing so much carpentry now. Um, I, I, I sort of have read between the lines a little bit, um, and noticed that, right. So, I want to just sort of dig in a little bit as to where the whole carpentry adventure um, sort of fits into this. I, I guess you might think of it as a transition um, from from one sort of style of of work to to another. So you studied uh, classics in college and then went into journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so so carpentry. I mean, you know, like it's not something that I would ever think of doing it seems like it's like what jumped out about carpentry um sort of where in your own life story does that sort of fit into something that made a little bit of sense to you yeah you know i mean it was funny i in 2008 there were no there were no jobs around when i had left it was a sort of an ill-timed decision and i think when i <laughs> my, when i was when i was sitting at my desk at the phoenix just dying of boredom and sort of dying of hating the internet like the thing I was thinking was like, I just, I want to be a landscaper. Like I want to, I want to be doing something with my hands. I want to be outside. I want to be away from the screen. I don't want to have my face in the screen anymore. Um, and, you know, it was months and months of feeling like, what have I done? I've made this huge decision and this huge mistake and I'm never going to get a job again. Like I've, I've just like, I've just, you know, I've been completely derailed. Um, and so one, one, this sort of tearful morning on Craigslist saw this, um, this posting saying carpenter's assistant sought women strongly encouraged to apply. And it was this moment of like, oh my gosh, this is it. And I truly, truly knew nothing about carpentry. And it, and it's definitely fair to say that like, if it hadn't said women strongly encouraged to apply, I would not have clicked on it. I would not have looked, I would not, but I was like, all right, well, you know, like, I, you know, I'm sort of strong and athletic and sort of know how to use my hands to do things, but We'll see what this says. Um, and wrote this ridiculous email um, to the woman who posted the ad saying, you know, I have no experience, but you know, I'm curious and, and willing to learn. Um, and, you know, she got, I mean, it was a sign of the time. She got hundreds and hundreds of emails from guys, men and women, a lot of men, you know, 20 years in the trades. Um, people were desperate for work. Um, and then she she auditioned. It felt like an audition. She interviewed, auditioned, had people, about six of us, one at a time, come in and work a half day of work with her. Um, and I, you know, I ended up 
getting the job and we worked together for, for many, many years. Um, and it didn't make sense for a long time. You know, I mean, there was this feeling of like, what am I doing? You know, I, the, the learning curve was so steep. Um, uh, it was so, it was such a change from what I'd been up to. It didn't, it was not a sense-making, um, career move. Um, uh, and it was also, I mean, it was, it, it did sort of satisfy that longing to be away from the screen and learning really beautiful, practical skills that I had no idea about, you know, I mean, it was just like, it's a lot of stuff. I realized so much how much I was taking for granted, you know, like, oh, mm-hmm. like all the walls around us, you know, it was like, oh, now, now <laughs> I know, I know how they work. I know how they're built. Um, and so it was this ongoing process of demystification. Um, uh, and, you know, I mean, as, and sort of as the years went on, you know, we were doing much bigger projects together. Um, uh, and then it was sort of starting to also feel, I mean, my boss was, she was a bit older than I was and she's really tough. Um, but she was starting to feel the work. It's very hard on your body. Um, and she was kind of easing out of it. Um, and for me, I always fretted about the stuff we were breathing in, you know, taking, you know, whatever. I mean, it's just, we were working in these old homes in Cambridge and Somerville, um, and, uh, it was sort of starting, I think for both of us in different ways, starting to feel like, okay, we're both sort of thinking about what's next. Um, and so, I mean, so I'm not doing the renovation work. Um, I still, um, I make tables now and then, and I carve spoons. So still am working with wood and, um, with my hands, uh, but not sort of going in and, and doing these, you know, $150,000 kitchen renovations. which was also I mean that in itself was like you know I mean it's really it's something there's something really beautiful and sacred about making a table or even a spoon I mean there's something really magic about that whereas the the sort of magic of going into these fancy homes and like you know putting in putting in these beautiful tile floors and these fancy cabinets and that started to lose a little a a little of the magic you know one of the things that I always think about is is like the, what you say about the stuff we take for granted and mm. you know i look at the room i'm in right now and i'm like how did they do it <laughs> I, totally, I don't understand yeah. how how <laughs> houses are made like i i, I get yep. how they're made but like where do you start and how do you know what's gonna work and 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 why would you groove this little thing here and you know i feel the same way like there's a lot of stuff that i know i will never be interested in really figuring out what makes it happen like i don't really understand how cars work right right i get that like i put gas in it and then i start it and then it goes and like that's the extent of my of my car knowledge i look at like computers and i'm like how what what do you do to make the metal do the thing that makes a computer happen like i don't like like, where does that start right um so so when you talk about this kind of discovery of of you know and i i just you i was thinking about a spoon and i'm like i wouldn't mm. know how to make a spoon like mm-hmm. give me a block of wood and like where is the spoon coming from and yeah. and yeah um so i wonder like i i know that this then sort of led to you going back into writing in sort of a different capacity um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in that it also gave rise to um a memoir that you wrote about carpentry and writing and yourself and uh, etc etc um how much did the the ability to learn something really completely new and and see sort of the um 
the steps along the way, kind of looking at a house and being able to deconstruct it and see how it's made, right? Mm -hmm. Did that change your uh, your relationship to writing in a way that like let you um, get back into into the into the process of writing? Yeah, that's that's a cool question. I, you know, it, it absolutely did in sort of unexpected ways. I think partly. Um, you know, I, I don't know if this is a case for you to, I mean, I, I have a brain that's really kind of word oriented. Even when I was doing the mm -hmm. carpentry work, I was still sort of writing, freelancing on the side. Um, that has sort of been a through line in my life. I mean, since I was a, since I was a kid, really. Um, and what I found was that the carpentry allowed this really beautiful awareness from words so that the the brain the sort of most active part of my brain the, the part that's making sentences and sort of saying like okay what it, what is this like how do I describe this how do I put this into words was shut off a little bit it was quieted um so that when you're you're concentrating on you know um cutting a piece of wood there isn't that that sort of voice that's constantly trying to sort of figure out how do I say this? How do I say this? Um, and I found having that space open up was um, a great service to the writing. Like the, the work was still getting done. The writing work in my mind was still good, getting done, but in a different, um, like a different and more rested way in some way. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that it was also um, – like I wasn't good at being a carpenter for a long time, you know, like, I mean, it was, I was real. I made mistakes all the time. Um, and, and it was this really humbling experience of, of not being good at something automatically. And so I think what it also showed me and my boss was an absolute master at this was that the patience required. And so I think that that was totally able to be translated back to the writing too, because it's like with the writing, I'm sure you know this too. I mean, it's, 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 there are days when it just feels like garbage, you know, and it just feels like you can't, you can't have a clear thought and you can't get anything across. And the ability to sort of say, like, not pick your computer up and throw it across the room, not yeah. like slam the wood against the wall or like throw a hammer, like throw these little fits and be like, all right, you know, screw it. I'm out of here. I'm done. Um, just being able to sort of sit with the frustration and and know and know that like okay it's not working out today you, you can come back to it later um one of the things my boss often said my carpentry boss was be smarter than the tools and it was this idea like okay you have a brain you know you can figure this out take a deep breath uh and and just and just you know work it out um and so that i think that really sort of went back and forth um with the writing as well so in Hammerhead, you also bring up Ovid, um, mm, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> who is also the subject of your second book, which we'll talk mm -hmm. in more detail um, shortly. But so I was also curious if, you know, in writing that book, in Practicing Carpentry, if that sort of gave you a new insight into um, your your college, like, study uh mm. your 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 study of classics um let's i want to kind of go back to where that started for you anyway um and then how that sort of bridges over to uh to carpentry right and then into into the into the next book um when did you start getting into uh classics and myth um, yeah yeah etc that made you like yeah you know i had a i had um a great Roman and Greek civ teacher in high school um, and started taking Latin as a freshman um, 
uh, which which was great. I I I I loved it, and also as I was saying, I I do regret not learning a modern language. Um, but I you know I just I loved those stories. You know I just those the the myths were so exciting to me, um, and it seemed like classics were a way to study history, literature, politics, um, art, um, which it was sort of it was sort of the best best of all worlds for my own brain. Um, and so, uh, it was, it did sort of, you know, it was high school, um, that it, it sort of ignited. I had had, I don't know. I mean, I feel like a lot of kids had that, that yellow book of Dallaire's myths. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and so it was, I mean, you know, it's, that was there from, from, from being a kid and, and those were, those were intoxicating stories. And so it was this, you know, the, the pursuit of, of learning, sort of immersing myself in those stories. Um, I don't know, I mean, just felt like a cool way to spend some time in college. Um, and it's funny, you know, with, with, with Hammerhead, the first book, I was working on the, the second draft of it. And I was like, man, I got to read something that isn't going to infect the ideas or the sort of cadences or the ideas. I need to read something, you know, sort of whatever, just sort of for, for pleasure that's not going to influence what I'm working on. And I was like, you know, wow, I never read The Metamorphosis when I was in college. I'll read this giant epic poem. And it ended up being this absolute backbone of, of Hammerhead. Um, uh, just in, ter- in terms of the ideas of ongoing transformation, both in terms of the transformation in my own life, um, you know, going from a journalist to a carpenter and the sort of transformations that we were enacting you know, there's a tree and now it's a board and now it's part of a deck. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and so it, 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 it did, it sort of, it sort of fed, it fed these sort of ideas. Um, and then, um, with Wake Siren, I had, you know, the, my sort of the final carpentry season had sort of come to a close and I was trying to get my sort of writing muscles back and I was reading the metamorphosis because I do, I do sort of return to it because I think it's beautiful. Um, sort of when I'm in between books or just to pick it up. And I was looking at one of the stories and I was like, oh, like maybe I'll just try to try to rewrite this. And um, it was a story of Callisto. Um, uh, and, and, and it was sort of, it just, it just started coming. And I was like, oh, that was, that was cool and fun. Maybe I'll try another and then another. And it just, I have not had a writing experience like this before or since where it just kept coming. And so this book, um, retelling these stories of the metamorphosis uh, was written, you know, in, a, in about three months um, in this real kind of, yeah, like, I mean, outpouring is, is sort of the only word I know how to use about it. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a good word for it. I, yeah, yeah. I've never written anything in three months. So. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's, let's talk about Ovid as the sort of subject. I, 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 I want to, do what I do with my students when I tell them how to how to write papers, which is to say, assume the person reading doesn't know anything yep, uh, yep. about about what you're talking about. I would suspect that a good chunk of my listeners know who Ovid is, but I would also suspect mm-hmm. that most people in general just like know that it's some you know old timey myth person. Yep, uh, and and that's and that's about it. Um, so. Tell us about Ovid and the Metamorphoses and why this particular collection was the one you wanted to dig out, right? And uh, sure. sort of sort of ba- base your, your, your work on. 
Yeah. So um, The Metamorphosis is a 12,000 line epic poem. I hope I'm getting that fact right. I think it's I think that, I think that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's, you know, I mean, <clears throat> it's Oh, sorry. Upstairs. I'm sorry. You're wrong. It's 11,995. <laughs> <laughs> um and uh and it's it's um <clears throat> It's a Roman retelling of a lot of the ancient Greek myths, um, and it's it sort of it's 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 essentially kind of a, a history of the world. I mean, it starts in primordial chaos and 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 leads us through Caesar, and and throughout it's sort of um, it's story after story of transformation. Um, and 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 to me, I mean, some of them are very well known myths, Arachne, and some of them are ones that you know you even I, who studied this in college, I mean, you know, are deeply unfamiliar. Um, but I think what was compelling to me is this idea um, of ongoing change, of the fact that um, these that the sort of transformations bo- born both in sort of violence um, and in, I guess, beauty and sort of they're, they're, they're ideological as well, sort of explaining, you know, oh, this is why this flower is red and this is why this constellation is a bear. And this is why, you know, I mean, which these sort of natural world explanations, which are compelling and exciting to me as well. So I think, you know, it, it's, to me, it's a very sensual book. It's a very, um, Vital living text. I think these stories. What's remarkable to me about um, about the metamorphosis is how alive it still feels, and how uh, it doesn't feel like this sort of dusty, non-understandable um, ancient text. It feels very relevant to 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 sort of what we're all living through right now. Right, and so within that, though, and part of the the genesis for your book is the 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 treatment or or <laughs> i don't even know if treatment is the right word for it the dismissive nature of the very idea of um of of the agency of women right right um right. that there are a lot of women in ovid there's a lot of women in um you know classical greek myth but uh, unlike the men, sometimes the women rarely, if ever, serve as anything except for a, um, a plot device, <laughs> right? right? A exactly. way to, mm-hmm. to get from point A to point B. One of the ones that really stood out to me when I when I started kind of thinking about it in these terms um, is you know one of my favorite myths of all time is is Orpheus. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you know, and I was thinking about like oh. You know that has sort of a, a a feminist quality to it, and I don't even know why I thought that. I guess because, unlike so many other myths, it deals so sort of frankly with the idea of like romantic um, uh-huh, erotic uh-huh. love and, and and so on and so forth, which I associate sort of in my in my Western patriarchal brain as like being being feminist. And, I, and you know, you made me think like, oh wait a second, no, that's not at all what's going on here. Um, uh-huh. and, and Eurydice is just sort of this uh, this person who is being, you know, shoved back and forth between these two obsessed men. So you know, the reason I sort of bring that up is that is that when I when I think about Eurydice um, within the context of that story, and I realize there's just not much to her mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it was written by men in, in patriarchal society. Um, where do you find these characters' stories? Like, like, what do you use in order to sort of um, 
find fragments of uh, three-dimensionality to these characters that you can then give life to. Because often it seems like they are just husks without really any authentic um, story to tell, and yet you find the stories to tell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was sort of the deep the deep pleasure of that project was reading 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 the metamorphosis very closely, and you know, going through these stories, um, uh, the stories in which women are 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 transformed, and you know, in a lot of them, in 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 the sort of a surface reading, a lot of the stories sound exactly the same. So you have you know, God chases nymph, um, she's transformed into a tree or a rock either in punishment because she was raped and someone gets jealous or to be saved, you know, so that she isn't raped. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's that, it's sort of that story over and over and over again. Um, And so there would usually be one or two telling details that would differentiate um, these women. And so one, I mean, one that always sort of sticks in my mind was, you know, she wore a white headband. Mm -hmm. And so I would read, I would read these stories and sort of, closely, closely take notes, read, 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 and then just let one of those details just kind of sit in my mind and then just kind of let it, let it live. And, and I would just sort of, I mean, this is when it starts to sound a little nuts, but I would just sort of listen. I would listen for this woman's voice in my mind and I would listen for how she wanted to tell her story and what she wanted to say. And at the time I was going for these really long, long runs. And so I would just sort of, I would go for runs and just hear hear these voices <laughs> um and and i think that it was it was sort of letting them speak uh and tell the story the way that they wanted to tell it and and you know some of them are told in kind of um in a way that isn't sort of this ancient sort of epic register kind of sort of in this sort of mythological tone and some are told in a very you know the way you and i would speak right now right. um so it is, I mean, it was, it was just this, it was just this, um, focusing on those tiny details and, and, and letting, and letting the voices kind of, I don't know, like bubble up into my brain. These, um, this kind of approach of, uh, taking characters who either, you know, serve as nothing more than a plot device and, you know, giving them voice or or taking a well-known sort of classical story and giving it a new perspective, um, you know, like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead or something like that, right? Has, you know, it's been, it's, 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 it's a thing. Oh yeah, um, it's a total, you're, it's a total <laughs> thing. <laughs> you're, you're not the first person who's done nope. it. Um, it is also a thing with a wildly sort of um, across the board success and failure Rate, right so um you know sometimes it's it's a revelation and sometimes mm-hmm. it's not uh and 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 doesn't really work um but i think also one of the things that i see a lot of criticism of is that sometimes it comes across as gimmicky mm-hmm. um how conscientious were you of that tendency especially of sort of critics to say this is just a gimmick um you know for instance like one of your stories you retell as an email, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, so you use all these different sort of, as you said, modern platforms to, to tell these stories. Um, was that in the back of your mind? Like, is this is this gimmicky, gimmicky, or is it, is it authentic? Or or was it because it was sort of, as you say, all sort of pouring out from you in the course of three months? Um, never something that even was a was a concern. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's an interesting question. I haven't. That's that's a really interesting question, and I totally 
was not aware of it when I was working on that. It's interesting that you use the word gimmick, though, because when I was working on Hammerhead, I was absolutely aware of it. I was like, oh, everyone's going to think this is a gimmick. Because I feel like at that time, there were a lot of books like, oh, the year I spent without shoes. And these sort of, they were total gimmicks. Like <laughs> people would like, like exit their normal lives and go do something different and write a book and then go back to their sort of normal lives. And I was very much, it, both in my own personal life, living it and as, as, as writing, writing that book, I was like, oh, everyone's going to think this is just a lark. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I always think like nine years is kind of like, that's longer than a lark. Um, uh, but with this, no, I wasn't. Um, I was, it really, I wasn't thinking about critics. I wasn't thinking, I wasn't thinking about readers. I was just writing it. And I think it wasn't until, like, it truly was a matter of like, I sent it off to my agent. It, it you know, it sold. I, like, I didn't even read it over. I spell checked it and sent it off. And so the first, <laughs> the first time I read it over was actually yeah. a really distressing <laughs> experience. It was not. Why? I think because I had, it was a very strange, um, I didn't remember re- writing a lot of it for one thing. And so it was reading this and it was just like, it was basically being confronted with the really darkest pits of my own imagination. And, yeah. and, and it was like, oh my God, like, I can't believe this came out of me. And that's when I started to get a little bit more, it wasn't so much um, a feeling of like, oh, people are going to think this is gimmicky. It was, it just felt this is, you know, I mean... I, I, it was a, it was a peculiar experience of sort of, you know, I had written a book about my actual real life. Um, and this, this new project, this, this fiction project based on Ovid, like I, that felt in some ways more personal and it, more exposing than a book about my actual life. Um, in the sense of, of this sort of, oh, here's a, here's, here's a window into, to my imagination. Um, it is a very dark and violent book. And so it was, it, yeah, it was, it, it, it was, yeah, I just, I, yeah, I did not, I did not think about sort of gimmicks and I was just trying to tell the stories that the way that they were emerging in my mind. Do you like reading your own writing or no? Do you like, do you like, do you like your work? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you that. Yeah. I'll ask you that. Um, wow. No one's asked that before. God, cool question. I mean, yes, I do. Um, I, I do. I, I feel, um, I, I, I wanted, I've, I've wanted to be, I wanted to be a writer since I was in third grade. I mean, that was really like, that's, I, that's what I wanted to do. Um, and so I feel so lucky that this is my life. Um, and I, I, I always know when I do really like something that I read I, that I've written because I read it over and over again. Like I, I'll, and especially I'll read it out loud when I'm working on it. Um, uh, obviously, I mean, not everything. There are some things that I feel, you know, complete cringing shame about. <laughs> um, uh, you know, not everything is a home run, but um, I mean, I think you know, I do feel proud of of the work I've been able to do. Has. Um... In in sort of going back and and um, reading Wake Siren after, you know the the tornado <laughs> of making it and then mm. and then publishing it and mm. then going back to it, um, and now it's been a couple of years since it came out. Not 2019, right? That's so, right. Yep. Yeah. Um, so has that has it uh, changed the way that you think about or look at? Um, 
classical myth um, and its relevance to today, uh, gi- giving it sort of this new voice and this new angle. Um, mm-hmm. I know, like you, I think you and I agree that like it is timeless anyway. <laughs> like, mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. one of the things I yell at my students about, right? And try to get them to understand how you know the myth of Pandora like matters to them. Totally. Uh, <laughs> so. You know, I, I wouldn't ask you that way, but in terms of um, having seen that there is a way of telling these stories that is removed from the um, the legacy, the centuries old legacy of patriarchy, yeah. Yeah. Um, has it given you a new sort of, I don't know, appreciation for or uh, inspiration for putting these stories into a new context, either in your own head or in the way that you communicate to um, an audience or a reader? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's this is this is there was a moment I was asked back to talk to um, a high school where I went to high school that my Latin teacher invited me to come talk to one of his Latin classes. They were translating Ovid and and he he was speaking about these stories um, to his class with me there and and talking about um, in a very kind of halting, nervous way about the sexual violence and the rape um, throughout. And he's like, you know, I've spent years and years um, not addressing that in the classroom. And I think this is, this is to me was so telling is that these stories are so foundational. So we do, we read them and we, we, we just gloss over the fact that, wow, like the story is about, I mean, the, the center of the story is about rape and, and no one quite acknowledges that. Um, and, and I think that that's what was, and what the teacher was saying, he's like, you know, it makes me feel like maybe I should, I should, um, start talking about that. And I was like, yeah, man, definitely. Because it's like <laughs> these things, it's like, oh, this is just so normal that it's that it's not even worth discussing, you know? And so then it becomes, it sinks in in that way. You know, it sinks into our understanding of, oh, this is how the world works and this is how it's been working and this is how it still works, um, which is, you know, a, a problem. Uh, and so I hope that, I mean, gosh, I think that the, the discussing of it, the acknowledging of it in, in high school, I don't think those kids are too young to sort of, to, to sort of be confronted with the fact that, yes, okay, we're going to talk about this beautiful piece of literature. Um, we're going to talk about the language of it. We're going to talk about the natural beauty of it. Um, and we're also going to address the fact that there's, you know, like, this, is, this is sexual violence, uh, violation, rape. Um, and let's be real about that too. Um, uh, it's, it's like a respect to the, to the reader, I think. Um, and to not, I think, you know, I mean, to sort of, to read that as, as a young person or even as an adult and sort of say, ha, huh, wow, this feels a little like, gosh, like, am I overreacting? This feels kind of violent. This feels kind of, this feels kind of wild. Um, and not have that acknowledged. I don't know. feels, feels like an ongoing error. Um, and I do think that's starting to change. I think you're seeing more, for one thing, more women translators, which I also think is making a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, Emily Wilson's translations of um, the Odyssey. Uh, there's a new, there's a woman named um, Stephanie McCarter who's um, working on a translation of the Metamorphosis right now, which I think should be out in a year or two. Um, but these choices, I mean, the way that the language sinks into us, I mean, there's this really amazing example from Emily Wilson's translations of the Odyssey. And she she was talking about how in the Homer, um, there's there's a, the, the part about the sirens, which is, 
you know, I mean, it's like, it's like 12 lines or 15 lines. Um, and yet the sirens occupy this huge role in our imagination, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and it has over the years, centuries been translated, um, honeyed song poured forth from their lips. And what Wilson was saying was that, man, there's no way like the, the, the language in, in the Greek is mouth, you know, Mouth is the word, not lips. And lips, for all these male translators, is a little bit sexier of a word, you know? And so it's, it's even on sort of a language level, there's this, the way these stories, we absorb these stories um, on a language level can, can sort of affect how we, how we experience, experience them. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, okay, I, let's, let's um, get to today. Uh, yeah. where you kind of where you kind of find yourself so um, again going back to 2008 it's it's been a it's been quite an odyssey um, pardon the turn of <laughs> turn of phrase there <laughs> for you um, and so you you're you're writing uh, basically full-time again now um, mm. you're writing for the Paris view where do you sort of how do you feel right now how do you how how do you um, after going through this personal um also metamorphosis mm. you know with with carpentry being kind of the um what seems like the uh cocooning right of mm-hmm. of that of that of that change having made this this you know major life change and and where you see yourself today um professionally what's changed and how do you how do you feel today yeah gosh i mean it's also it's 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 sort of coming off you know since 2008 and also coming off of this extremely strange and singular year oh yeah um, huge huge bookends i mean yeah. those are those are two major <laughs> right like for yeah. so many reasons of course yeah totally um uh you know i think that as i said i think you know writing has been the kind of through line through all of it um and so i think that i guess it wasn't until it was, I guess, I guess I'll answer it this way. I, you know, there was a lot of time working as a carpenter. It took me a lot. It took me some years when people would say, oh, what do you, you know, ask the question, what do you do? To, to be able to say with confidence and assurance, oh, I work, I work as a carpenter, you know, uh-huh. like not yeah. this kind of flailing, like, well, can, like I was a journalist and, um, and, and I, and I, it was, it was this question of like, when, when do you earn it? When, when, when can I say that and mean it? Um, mm-hmm. and it, and it took, it took a while. Um, and it took much longer with writing, you know, I, I, even after, you know, years of working as a professional journalist, um, years of, you know, writing book reviews, having published a book, I was, I was still unsure whether I was allowed to call myself a writer, you know, when this was like the, yep. my, the pursuit of my life. Um, and so I would say that Wake Siren, um, that book coming out, I mean, it wasn't until then that I, that it was really in, in my blood sort of felt like I'm a writer. I mean, that's, this is, there's no question. Um, and so, um, you know, in this moment now of like this, this, after this strange year, um, of, of, I think this is true for a lot of people, uh, of feeling kind of compromised and sort of having, you know, the creative juices flowing, um, uh, which again, of like all the, like, I don't even want to say that as a complaint compared to what a lot of people have been through, but um, a strange time to try to sort of get work done. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, 
I'm starting to feel the ability to sort of concentrate and and sort of the sort of juices coming back a little bit, uh, the writing juices, which has been a relief. Um, and it is, you know, I do, I miss being in a newsroom at times. I miss being on a job site at times. I miss sort of like the, you know, working outside for eight hours a day, building a deck and being very strong. Um, but I also feel lucky that I can sort of, you know, pers- pursue these projects. Um, and yeah, I do, I am still doing stuff for the Paris Review. I'm about to start a, a year long series um, with them about the, <laughs> the full moon, um, a bunch of essays about the full moon. And I write this column every week for the Boston Globe um, about New England literary news and have other, you know, projects kind of simmering away. And so, you know, I mean, it's the, the, the carpentry. I mean, that's it, even if I'm not getting paid to go into people's houses, those are skills I'll have for the rest of my life, you know, which I'm grateful for. Um, uh, and have little, you know, of course, still have dreams of like building my own little house, you know. Um, so that still feels, that doesn't feel like an evaporated scenario. That still feels sort of present. And it, I mean, and certainly still feels alive when I'm sitting, <laughs> carving my little spoons. <laughs> which I um, recommend to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we should have a whole different conversation about um, about Taoism and the Earth yeah. block. And yeah, that's, that's too long uh, <laughs> and, and a completely separate topic. Is there another book coming? And uh, if so, uh, where does Ovid fit into this one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, gosh. So I, I mean, I mean, sort of that like cagey, not talking about the projects I'm up to right now. There's sort of early yeah. stage enough that that I sort of want to keep it keep it close to my chest. Um, uh, you know, I think. I mean, I think what 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 animates my mind. Is is it, are these ideas of transformation? And I think always with writing, I think what I've been trying to do um, is get myself more at home with the fact that we all die. I think that's really at the at the heart of it. This, this sort of ultimate transformation is I'm trying to write myself into an an at homeness <laughs> with that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you know, I mean, whether Ovid explicitly comes into it, I mean, these ideas of of transformation of one thing becoming something else of these of these cycles and patterns um, that that will I think that that feels to me something that will always kind of be at the the sort of the, the thumping heart of what I'm up to. If people want to buy some spoons from you. Oh yeah. <laughs> How would they go about doing that? Gosh, um I mean you can um email me. I think my email address is on on my website ninamclaughlin.com. Um my Instagram is private, but you know you can you can reach me there. I mean, you know, all the I guess all the usual ways. I don't have a spoon website yet, but I might I might start one. Spoon websites are all the rage these days. Yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) uh, Nina, it's been really wonderful talking to you. John, thank you so much. These have been fantastic questions. I'm really grateful. Orpheus melted the heart of Persephone, but I.